Okay, we're going to take our Bibles out now, and we're going to open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. It says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. When I think about the amount of shoes that we have, it's amazing, isn't it? Back by my back door, there's always a couple pairs there. If it's a rainy or snowy or kind of wet time of the year, there's always a pair of bogs sitting by the back door that I can slip on to go in and out. Well, in the winter, they're a fuzzy rubber, rubber-soled slippers, or in the summer or spring like now, they're a pair of Crocs that if I just got to run to the jaw, uh, garage or, or out to the church or something and back in, then I'll just slip those on real quick and out the door and back. I have a pair of work boots that can often be found by the back door. Better if I put them away in the closet like I'm supposed to. For this time of year where it's getting warmer, I've got some lighter weight, more breathable type of shoes that I wear for work. And then I also have, of course, the pair that when you got to work outside and it's really cold, you got those kind of things too. So I'll find that a lot of times I might have three or four pairs of shoes by the door, but there's just a lot of different uses uh, for those things, and they're all important for the things that, that they do. Lisa's the same way. Lisa's got, uh, you know, what do they call them? Pumps and heels and for, you know, dress kind of shoes. And then, then she's also got tennis shoes and she's got sandals and she's got boots and she's got sandals and she's got flip flops. And then, and then there's the sandals that she has. She kind of likes sandals. And so we end up with all these shoes, but each of them has their own purposes. Look at the realm of athletics. When I was in, in athletics in high school, I had shoes that were just specifically for wrestling and I had cleats for football and it took a different kind of cleat for baseball and it took a different kind of cleat for track. They're just shoes for just about everything. And the reason for that is is obvious. There are different ways that you need your feet protected for different kinds of activities. And that's what brings us to verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 6 as he starts focusing on the feet and the protection for the feet. He says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, there's a couple different ways that they were valuable to a soldier back at that time. One of the ways that they were valuable for a soldier was for protection. The enemies would often put out in the paths these things called uh, gall sticks, which are kind of a polluted thing that if you get punctured by that thing, you're going to become infected and it's going to become a big deal for you. And they'd put sharp sticks and stuff in the path. In some sense, they protected from that. But in another sense, they also gave a solid footing Josephus, he's a first century Jewish historian, and he talked about the shoes in his day being basically a set of shoes that was just a whole bunch of nails embedded in the soles of the shoes to give them good traction. Having that strong base, that solid foundation to be able to fight from is crucial. I remember back when we were living in Owatonna, on one weekend a bunch of guys from church said, hey, we go out 
to this junior high school. We play football a little bit if you ever want to come out and play with us. And I thought, that'd be fun. And I got a little time this Saturday. And so I went and played football with them that day. And I didn't realize how into it they all were, right? I was just showing up for kind of a just a fun thing to do with the guys. And they all come and they all had cleats on. I didn't. I was just playing in my tennis shoes or playing on damp grass. We're playing and I'm on defense trying to cover the guy and, and I couldn't stick with him for nothing. All I'd have to do is come out and make one halfway sharp turn and I'm left standing there with my feet spinning trying to catch up and he's already got the ball and running for a touchdown. It was not very fun because I spent the whole day losing. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't keep up. Why? Because every time I would go to move like they move, my foot would slip. Theirs wouldn't. I was no match, no contest. I was just playing a game. But when you're a soldier in a battle, if you're the one whose foot doesn't slip, then you're probably the one that won. Well, military success is... And especially in those days when you're dealing mostly with foot soldiers, was largely based on those kinds of things. In fact, when you look back at history, as uh, Ace Covington Wood tells us, he says the military success of both Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were due in large measure to their armies being well shod and thus being able to undertake long marches at incredible speed over rough terrain. When it gets down to talking about what was on the feet of the soldiers, this is no light thing. This was a purposeful and an intentional part of the armor. In fact, remember, we're still in that part of the armor, which are the parts of the armor that they would not take off, that they absolutely had on all the time. It's not just something that they could grab and go. These are the things that they, you, the soldier would not be caught dead without his shoes on. You're not ready for the battle without those shoes because that's what gives you your good footing. And that's what we're considering this morning. How do I have this good footing for the life that God has called me to live in the battle that I am currently engaged in? Well, to do that, I think we need to do a couple things to start with. We need to define some terms. The first term that we're going to define is the gospel. And the word gospel, it means the good news. And so when that word is applied to Jesus Christ, then it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished for us. Now, the Bible gives us a very good definition of what the gospel is. And, and you know, you might be sitting there thinking, well, do we really need to define the gospel? Don't we all kind of know what the gospel is? I wouldn't assume that. You know, I was involved in a service one time that was kind of a multi-congregational service. It was for a special event. I had one small part of it. And I was talking to the person that was in charge of the whole service, and, and I asked him about, well, what do you think about this kind of thing? Because this is a special event, so it's an event that's going to bring people in that aren't necessarily in church all the time. And uh, it's going to bring, bring people in that are Christians and people in that are not Christians. And I told him, I said, you know, I said, for me, the biggest thing in this is whenever you have an event like this, you've got to have the gospel. You've got to get the gospel in there. And with some people, it might be the only chance you have to share the gospel with them. And... That person told me, he said, yeah, absolutely. That's the way I think too. And then the, the time came for that uh, special event and we went through and we celebrated that event and we had that service. But afterwards I was thinking, where was the gospel? The gospel wasn't there. But we spoke about it so clearly before that I was sure the gospel was going to be there. But where was the gospel? And I thought back through it and I, I could not find the gospel anywhere until it dawned on me where it was. Within the ceremony, there were readings from different passages. And one of the passages that there was a reading from was taken from one of the Gospels. In other words, we use the word Gospel to refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the Gospels because they contain the good news of Jesus Christ. So when I said we need to have the Gospel in there, 
they came from a different perspective than I did. They weren't thinking the same thing I was thinking. They were like, well, yeah, we have the gospel. And in fact, I was talking to somebody else from a similar church a little bit later than that. And they said, well, we have the gospel in every service. And I said, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, we always read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And it's just part of our liturgy. Finally, I understood when I said get the gospel in, they meant do a reading from one of the gospels. But, but you know what? That's not really the way the Bible uses the word gospel. And not just to refer to those four gospels, but, but the gospel is a specific understanding and it needs to be left in its simplicity. And so that's what we want to define here this morning. The gospel is defined very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the first eight verses. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. And so the Apostle Paul defines the Gospel here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Gospel is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death is confirmed by His burial. And the resurrection is confirmed by the accounts of the witnesses. With that, you also need to embrace the context of what's going on here. Because it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this context that if you believe... It justifies you out from underneath the judgment of God. It delivers you from your sin. And if you don't, then it does not. You see, it's within that kind of a context that the Apostle Paul is talking to him. Notice again how he starts. I would remind you of the Gospel, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And then notice that next part, if. If you hold fast to the Word that I preached to you. He says, otherwise you've believed in vain. Vain means empty, without a cause. In other words, you may have given lip service to it, but your heart wasn't in it. If it's a real commitment, then you're still holding fast to it. If it wasn't a real commitment, then you believed in vain and and you really haven't experienced the salvation yet that he's talking about. You know, when I look at the different activities that surround the Gospel, when you read through the New Testament, you find that basically three things happen with the Gospel. The Gospel is preached. The Apostle Paul also refers to defending the Gospel. And then he also talks about believing the Gospel. So the Gospel is to be preached, the Gospel is to be defended, and the Gospel is to be believed. Well, if that's the case, then it certainly has to be defined. Because you can't preach something unless you're clear on what it is. You can't defend something unless something else is creeping in on it that you need to ward off and further define the Gospel. And you can't believe it unless it is clearly defined. And that's exactly why he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here. He says, look, you want some solid footing. You need to be resting, standing firm in the gospel. Let that give you your stability. Have good footing in the gospel. Now, as I mentioned, there were those that challenged the gospel. In fact, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and and pure devotion for, to Christ. 
For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And so false teachers were creeping into the church in Corinth there, and they were teaching some things that were not true. He says, I'm concerned because just as Satan led Eve astray, I'm afraid that you're being led astray. We're standing firm against what? Against the wiles of the devil. And that's exactly who led Eve astray. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians is giving us the armor that we need so that we don't fall to the same captive like Eve did. And it's the same thing that he was encouraging to the Corinthians in the second epistle so that they wouldn't fall captive to the devil in his schemes either. But how does that happen? He says, they're teaching you another Jesus. They're teaching you a different gospel. They were still using the name Jesus, that they were telling the people what Jesus was like. But they weren't defining Him accurately. They weren't telling you the truth about Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, look, that's, if it's not the same Jesus, then it's not Jesus at all. It's a different Jesus. He said, but you guys are going for it. You're falling for it. He does the same thing with the Gospel. He says, look, if you don't have the Gospel, you don't have Christ. You're falling for a different Gospel. The churches in Galatia, he was worried about the same thing. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6-9, through he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. Now notice that. If we end up involved in a different Gospel, if we end up involved in a different, a different understanding of who Jesus is, then we have lost Jesus. Right? Because he says you're so quickly deserting Him. To the Corinthians, he said, you are being led away from your devotion in Christ. To hold to another Jesus is not holding to Christ. So he says, you're deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the Gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a Gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. And so he, he says it a couple of times in there. Well, now if you read the rest of the book of Galatians, the rest of the book of Galatians is about this. You can tell that people are adding to the gospel, right? The gospel is Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. He rose again from the dead. If I repent of my sins and put my faith in Christ, then I'm saved. That's the simplicity of the Gospel. Well, in Galatians, you had people that were, uh, we'd call them Judaizers. They're saying, well, you, you Gentiles, you can become Christians through Jesus, but yeah, you also kind of got to become Jewish for that to happen. And so they're telling these uh, Christian people that, look, you need to be circumcised because that's how we tell between a Jew and a Gentile. You need to believe in Jesus, plus you need to be circumcised, then you're okay before God. And the Apostle Paul is writing to him and saying, look, as soon as you added to the Gospel... It's no longer the Gospel. Either the death and resurrection of Christ completely is sufficient for our sins, or it's not. So they were adding to the Gospel. Now he'd go on in the next chapter and he says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed to be influential, the Gospel. You know what, let me read that again without the parentheses because it will be a little clearer for our purposes. I went up because of a revelation and set before them the Gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the Gospel might be preserved for you. Now, here's the deal with the circumcision. It's kind of interesting that if you read through the New Testament, you'll find that Timothy, who worked with the Apostle Paul, Timothy got circumcised. Why? Timothy had a mom who was Jewish and a dad who was Gentile. And where Timothy was ministering, apparently it would have been a hindrance to the Gospel. And so he went through circumcision to get rid of that obstacle so that he could preach the Gospel clearly without always having to deal with that. But here's the deal. We just read in this passage that Titus did not get circumcised. Why? He also was somebody that worked with the Apostle Paul. Same capacity as Timothy did. Timothy was left in Ephesus. Titus was sent to Crete. Both of them are given very similar instruction if you read through the letters to Timothy and to Titus. Very similar jobs. But Titus, no circumcision. Why? Because it would have diluted the Gospel. Not, Not freed up the Gospel. It would have hindered the Gospel. Because circumcision was getting added to the Gospel in the context where he was. And the Apostle Paul said, not for a minute, not for a second, will we give in to that. Because the Gospel is simply the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead and my faith and I'm saved. Once we start adding things to the Gospel, we've diluted the Gospel. Now, I think in our culture, we're in danger of corrupting the Gospel because we've got churches out there that are saying that behaviors that the Bible lists as sinful, saying, oh, you don't need to repent of those. God's fine with you if you do that. That destroys the Gospel as well because the Gospel is that Christ died for my sins, rose again from the dead. I repent of my sins, put my faith in Christ, and now I am dead to my sins as well with Him. So we need to understand what that Gospel is and keep it in its simplicity that it is the death and resurrection of Christ and that is my freedom from sin is found through my faith in Him. Now, the second thing that we need to find is readiness. What does that mean when we're supposed to put on as shoes the readiness that comes from the Gospel of peace? Well, some people think that it means that we need to always be ready to share the Gospel. That is consistently found within Scripture that we are responsible for doing that. In 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 15, he says, "...but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect." We're called upon to be always ready to share our faith, which would include, obviously, that Gospel message. In uh, 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul would write to Timothy and tell him to preach the Word and to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But that being true, I still don't think that that's exactly what he means by readiness in this point. You see, readiness can mean that you're equipped, ready to go. It also can mean like having a firm foundation or a base, which is how I think that it's intended to to be applied to our lives. They use that word to refer to like a ship's tackle. A ship has everything it needs ready to sail. 
But it's also used to refer to a firm foundation, that base that's underneath us. Well, how do we know? Well, I think from the context of the passage, I think it's the second one. And here's my reasoning. It's not telling us to be ready to share the Gospel. It says we need to have on our feet the readiness that comes with the Gospel. The last three chapters, he's been telling us this is what your walk with Christ needs to be. It needs to be a walk in unity and a walk in wisdom and a, and a walk in holiness and a walk in love and a walk in light. All those things. But then when he gets to this passage, he says now you need to be able to stand. So he's not talking about traveling about. He's talking about standing firm in Christ. Standing with a with good footing, a good a good foundation underneath you. And what is that good foundation? The Gospel is that good foundation. He calls it the Gospel of peace. The Gospel is what makes our peace with God. The Gospel is what puts us in a good place, in a good standing before God. There is no other footing that's a solid footing to stand before God with. Have the readiness that comes with the Gospel. That comes from you believing the Gospel, from standing firm in it. Well, as we consider that, there's just two places where that gives us a good footing. It gives us a good footing, first of all, with God. If I look back in Ephesians and see, well, how did he use this before? How did he use the term gospel? How has he used the word peace? We look back to chapter 1 and verse 13, and what do we find? In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He says, look, you're in a solid place before God. You are sealed with His Holy Spirit. When were we sealed? When you believed the Gospel. When you realized that Jesus Christ died on that cross for your sins and rose again from the dead, and that through faith in Him, you could have that eternal life. You could be, you could be God's child. You can't really have a better footing before God than being His child. That's exactly what it's talking about in that place. Romans echoes the same thing. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's the Gospel and through faith in the Gospel that we experience the salvation of God. That's what gives us our whole footing. As I studied this passage, I thought, what is it? What is it about the Gospel that can make me stand firm in the battles that I have to go through for Christ? And the Gospel is that rock that I stand on. The Gospel is that foundation of our faith. It is that truth that everything else is based on. In fact, even in relation to some of these other things, that you look through up Gospel, you're often going to find it connected with the word truth. Remember we talked about the belt of truth beforehand. We find it connected to the breastplate of righteousness in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's revealed where? In the Gospel. We're going to learn about the, the shield of faith. And what do we put our faith in? The Gospel. The Gospel is what we put our faith in. And we talk about the sword of the Spirit being the Word of God, and it's in the Word of God that is revealed to us the Gospel. So it all, it all kind of hinges around the Gospel when you think about it. The Gospel is that rock. And you know, that's one of the things that I thought. In whatever, whatever waves come against me in my, in my life, whatever battles I might face, this is where I always want to stand, right firm in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the Gospel will give me the footing that I need for everything else that the world 
and the devil can throw at us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, well, that's what the gospel does. He calls it the gospel of peace. And it's through the faith in that gospel that I have peace with God. Before that, the Bible tells me that I'm, I'm at enmity with God. I'm His enemy. But the moment I come to faith in Christ, the moment I trust in what He did for me in that Gospel, is the moment that I am now at peace with Him. I've gone from being His enemy to being His friend. He used the word reconciled. I've gone from being His enemy to being His child, His dearly beloved, as a matter of fact, as it tells us in the book of Ephesians. So in the Gospel, I am on good footing before God. But not only am I on good footing with God, but I also am on good footing within the church. Within the church. You see, the Gospel not only gives me a a father, it also gives me brothers and sisters in Christ in a place where I fit, in a place where I belong. And I need that belonging. And that's what Ephesians, the other way that Ephesians uses the Gospel and peace is in reference to the church that God builds us into. God saves you, but He's not saving just you. And God saves you for a personal relationship with you, a personal relationship that He expects to be lived out within a corporate relationship with the other people that are doing the same thing because He's made you part of a family. And in this family, in this church, is where we get this practical experience. Well, Ephesians had quite a practical experience. I can't imagine what that was like. Because they're talking about, I mean, look at all the hubbub going around our culture and our society today about racism and systemic racism and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, the, the issues that people are battling back and forth about, I'll tell you, that had to be pretty small potatoes compared to what Ephesus would have been going through. Because Ephesus, you got Jews and Gentiles in the same church and they've hated each other before that. But they did. They came together as one. And when you look back in Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, who once, uh, you who once were far off, talking to the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. How did he make that peace? Through the gospel, the gospel of peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access into one spirit in one spirit to the Father. You see what he says? He's writing to that group of people and he says, look, some of you were far off. You were Gentiles and you weren't really part of the chosen people. Others of you were near. You were part of it. But you know what? Both of you needed peace. It came through the Gospel. And he says that God made peace with those who were near, those who were far. And now, what does that mean? That you should both, through one spirit, live in peace with one another. Then he goes on to define it in, in, in chapter 3, the rest of chapter 2 and in chapter 3, he refers to it as a mystery, something that was hidden in the past, but has made light more recently. So it was a mystery that was now opened up before them. And in verse uh, 6 and 7 of chapter 3, he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, notice, through 
the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. And so you see what they're doing is all these things are connected here. He's saying, look, you have peace. Those who are near have peace. Those who are far have peace. You all have peace. Why do you have peace? The gospel. Because the gospel came to the Jews and delivered the Jews. And the gospel came to the Gentiles and delivered the Gentiles. And now you both have peace with God, which means you better have peace with one another as well. Because now you have so much more in common than you ever had apart. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, remember when he's telling them to walk in unity, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, the Gospel, having our feet for shoes, the Gospel of peace is what gives us that solid footing. When the wiles of the devil come, when the deceptions that Satan wants to bring before us to try to deceive you as he did Eve, deceive you as he did some of the Corinthians and some of the Galatians, when those deceptions are coming your way, where are you going to stand? Well, you can stand firm if you're standing on the rock that is the Gospel. The Gospel is that footing. The Gospel is that grip that our feet desperately need for living this life in the way that God wants us to lead it. The Gospel is that foundation. It is that good footing.